Hey guys, check out my new sponsor. It's Peacehawk Coffee at peacehawk.coffee. First of all, business. You have to drink coffee in the morning, and you want it to taste good. Well, Peacehawk Coffee is the best from around the world. But then, just as important, Peacehawk Coffee donates at least a dollar of every pound sold to worthy foreign aid organizations like Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. When you buy Peacehawk Coffee, you're not only buying great coffee, you have a chance to support the economies of countries struggling against the effects of war and support private aid foundations doing life-saving work abroad. Sign up for their email list and get yourself some great coffee at peacehawk.coffee. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line now, I've got Arthur Bloom, and he wrote this piece at his substack. It's arthuriana.substack.com, a response to John Kiriakou. This is sort of a asterisk on a story that he wrote for TAC, uh, the American conservative magazine, we affectionately call it. Uh, the Knoxville kingpin who wasn't a black NRA member sitting in a prison for terrorists may be the missing link in Fast and Furious. What? Uh, welcome to the show. How you doing, Arthur? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us here. And I'm sorry, I always forget if I'm supposed to call you Jordan or Arthur. Oh, Arthur's good. Yeah, Arthur's that's what I read. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, so listen, uh, what a complicated mess this story is. It's a fascinating sort of a true crime story. The criminals, of course, being the government employees involved. Um, but we're talking about a guy, first of all, as you say here, he's in a prison for terrorists. And, you know, longtime listeners to this show, I'm not sure how long it's been since we covered this, but longtime listeners are familiar with the communications management units. Um, but I'll give you a chance to describe that. And then this guy is doing life plus 75 years in a communications management unit. I wonder, like, did he assassinate a federal judge or what did this guy do? Is he part of Egyptian Islamic Jihad? Yeah, so uh, some of the people in the prison are terrorists. But uh, so, you, as you said, let's maybe start out by talking about what is the CMU just for those those listeners who are maybe not familiar, these this type of prison was created in the Bush administration as a counterterror measure. There are special prisons between the two of them. There are two. There's one in Marion, Illinois, and there's one in Terre Haute, Indiana. And between the two of them, there are less than 200 inmates. So these are quite special prisons. They're, they're uh, the people who are incarcerated in them are people whose cases have some sort of politi uh, political interest and. The, the term of art that the government uses when it comes to inmates there is it's their inmates with what they call inspirational significance. So an inmate that's likely to inspire 
other criminals to commit acts of terrorism or commit crimes. And so, uh, you know, the inmates in there, at least in theory, are supposed to have this inspirational significance. Now, in reality, if you look at some of the inmates that are there, they don't appear to have any inspirational significance. Namely, um, one of the ones that I point out in my uh, in my first story for the American Conservative was an insurance scammer, and so you know an insurance scammer. Uh, it would be a stretch to say that he has inspirational significance. He's likely to uh, inspire other people to commit insurance fraud. That's not really what these prisons are for. So, according to a couple of estimates, the the though you know th- this is pretty murky. We uh, nobody's really done a really solid study of this. But about forty percent of the inmates in the CMUs, uh, between between the two of them, there are about two hundred inmates. Um, between the two of them, uh, about 40% of the inmates there are not terrorists. So what that says right off the bat is that these prisons are no longer being used exclusively for the purpose for which they were designed. Uh, and, and so that should just, you know, on basic kind of good governance grounds, maybe trouble people a little bit. Uh, and a, a number of, you know, t- terrorists and criminals you've heard of have, have been incarcerated there. There was an eco-terrorist who's gotten out. Um, who has described a little bit about his experiences there. There have been a number of, of accounts. Um, and one of, the, one of the inmates who has been able to write a fair amount about his experiences there from within the prison, though I understand he's been transferred, uh, is Marty Gottsfeld, who might be familiar to your listeners. Uh, Marty is, uh, is a hacktivist. Uh, that's how he describes himself. And he went, uh, he was convicted over a distributed denial of service attack on the Boston Children's Hospital. This was over the Justina Pelletier case, which was sort of, um, it, it was a pretty big deal for sort of parents' rights advocates. So what happened is uh, th- this girl, Justina Pelletier, had parents that I think could fairly be described as sort of hypochondriacs, and uh, they took their daughter to the Boston Children's Hospital, and the Boston Children's Hospital basically decided to keep her against the wishes of the parents. And and so the parents and those who sympathized with the Pelletier family claimed that this was a medical kidnapping, that the uh that the that the hospital had just kept the kid. And so Marty Gottsfeld was upset about this and he did a distributed denial of service attack against the websites of the Boston Children's Hospital. And that's what he went to prison for. And so uh, he's still he's still currently there. He has a few more years left on his sentence, but he's been writing some stories about his experiences there. And so a number of journalists, including Kiriaku uh, and myself, we've uh, we've been in touch with Marty. Uh, and uh, that's kind of I found out about through this Don Reynolds case through Marty. Uh, and I, I'm not divulging anything I shouldn't by saying that he, he's uh, Marty has written himself about Don Reynolds's case. And so. Uh, I asked Marty to put me in touch with Don Reynolds because I wanted to find out more about the Don Reynolds case. So that's the sort of background if we want to maybe start there. Uh, yeah, that's a good spot because I have probably a silly question, but how is he able to write these articles if it's a communications management unit? I thought that was the whole point was these people can't even talk to their lawyers a lot of the time and this kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I, uh, you know, just because, especially if you're a U.S. citizen, uh, just because you're incarcerated there doesn't mean you have no constitutional rights, right? And, uh, you know, so I, I think there are probably some circumstances in which the Bureau of Prisons would not want to litigate these things. 
And so they're they're not shutting down the communications of all of these inmates 100 percent. Uh, you know, the, the name is the communications management unit, not the non-communication unit. Right. Uh, so, so uh, yes, some of these inmates in certain circumstances are able to communicate and get stories out. And, and Marty has been doing sort of whistleblower stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I've also been uh, for, for a couple of years, I was in a letter, I, I was receiving letters from Don Reynolds and communicating with him about his case. Now, um, there have been, as I cover in my piece for TAC, weird things that happen to their mail. Uh, the mail will uh, end up at some routing facility or it like won't end up where it's supposed to get. Uh, so maybe that's the management part of the communications management. I, I don't really know. That's hmm. not something I can prove. All I can say is that weird stuff has happened to their mail. Yeah. Well, and you know, they really are draconian restrictions. And it's interesting what you mentioned about, you know, 40% uh, are not even on terrorism charges at all. And from what we know, a terrorism charge is a lot of times that is really inflated in the first place. But the poster boy for this, why we're supposed to accept that it's necessary is because of somebody like the blind Sheikh uh, Omar Abdel Rahman from Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who they prosecuted his lawyer, Lynn Stewart, for saying, you know, giving out a statement of his that supposedly was a, at least the government said was a recruitment pitch or something along those lines or a a call to action to Egyptian Islamic Jihad. And, but then we're talking about, you know, a guy who released some monkeys from some cages at a lab somewhere or, you know, all these, we, we, we go from the epitome, you know, the blind shake who tried to blow up the towers to now, like you're saying, a guy who's supposedly guilty of insurance fraud. And in this case, it really sounds like he's in there because I, I can even picture the conversation like it's episode of Law and Order. The, well, we better put him in the communications management unit because they railroaded him. And they don't want him to be able to describe how railroaded he was or they might have to let him out. Something like that. Seems like the most obvious motive for him even being in there in the first place. I think that's probably right. Uh, I uh, I will say, though, that the Don Reynolds case is extraordinarily murky. And if the big picture of this, I mean, I, I don't want to get to the big conclusions until we've had a chance to maybe discuss the case in a little bit more detail. But um, if if what's going on with the government is what I think is going on, which is that the government sort of made an alliance with the Sinaloa cartel, I'm not the first one to allege this. If that's the case, all of the details about that would kind of have to be managed. They would have to be kept out of courts. And so um, it it is possible Don Reynolds was involved in drug dealing that uh, evidence for which was not presented in the court. I'm I'm agnostic about that question because you sort of have to be. But uh, I will say the way our justice system is supposed to work is that you're convicted on the evidence that's presented in the court. And if you look at the evidence presented against Don Reynolds, it's extraordinarily thin uh, and it's flawed. And uh, so, so that's why I thought this was a case that kind of deserved a little bit more attention. Mm-hmm. And listen, I mean, from the point of view of the doe-eyed lady on the jury who presumes the guilt of anyone brought before them, why would the cops lie? They would have to have such a great reason to 
give someone charges they don't deserve and a sentence they don't deserve for crimes they didn't do. And I guess the average citizen, you know, the average Matlock viewer just can't imagine how that could possibly be. But sounds like if you're talking about the Fast and Furious gun walking thing, um, I don't know why it's walking instead of running, but uh, if you're talking about <laughs> that, then geez, yeah, there's something to cover up. And and would yeah, they would they put someone in prison just to cover up crimes that they committed when they're not even at risk of going to prison no matter what the worst thing they're risking is embarrassment and that's it and not even that because nobody even cares so that's right and the uh, local newspaper did cover this trial I, I mean Don Reynolds was made out to be really sort of the Scarface of Knoxville the uh, if if the government's case against him is true. He would have easily been the largest drug dealer in Knoxville. Uh, I mean, they, they accused him of dealing an enormous amount of drugs. The problem was they didn't present any evidence of that. And every bit of this case suggests that it's extraordinary, that there's nothing normal about it. The uh, For starters, if you just look at the plethora of federal law enforcement agencies that were involved in the investigation, uh, it's a, there, there are four or five of them. Uh, so you had the FBI, you had uh, the DEA, you had, uh, and the two lead criminal investigators were from the IRS. And the IRS agent, federal investigators were going through this guy's trash. And w one thing that's so murky about this is you would expect Don Reynolds was uh, a little bit of background about the guy. He was a, a small business owner. He owned four, four small businesses. He had a trucking company. He had a music company. He bred dogs, uh, did a couple of other things. He, he was a pretty entrepreneurial guy. And uh, he also was a big lover of firearms. He had a big gun collection. And uh, he possessed class three firearm stamps. And if you're a firearms enthusiast, you'll know what those are. They're quite hard to get. You need, uh, you know, you have to pass an extensive background check. You need a class three, you need class three stamps to possess machine guns or silencers, things like that. And, and Don Reynolds had class three stamps. And so that means he would have been watched quite closely by the ATF. And so uh, you, you have this instance in this case of several gun transactions being described at the trial and one of which would have been illegal if he didn't have a federal firearms license and it's being done under the supervision of some kind of federal agent and yet he's not being busted for it. And that was, you know, so if you look at the way these gun transactions are described at the trial, that's what kind of made me start to think that this might be related to Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. Okay, so talk about, first of all, just the sentence, life plus 75 and it really is right off the bat. I mean, I kind of made a joke there about assassinating a federal judge or something like that. But it seems like you'd have to really do something bad to get life plus 75. And then it's gun, drug and money laundering charges. And as you describe them, not much to any of. Well, first of all, do the drugs and the money laundering and then let's get back to the guns. But this sure sounds like just an absolute fraud of a case here. Yeah. So to, to talk, you're right. It, it is a it is a really extraordinarily harsh sentence for for something like this. And, um, you know, maybe for for your listeners who aren't familiar with some of the details of this. So the money laundering and the 
firearms charges all depend on the drug convictions. So if you commit a drug crime and you have a gun on you, that's an automatic sentence enhancement. That's the way that tends to work. And uh, same thing goes for the money laundering. If you're money laundering as part of a drug uh, operation, that's uh, that's a way of, of upping the sentence. Now, so the, these firearm sentence enhancements were under challenge in the Supreme Court when this case went down. And so the judge actually explicitly said, you know, if these um, these these firearm enhancements go down in the Supreme Court, we're going to ensure that this guy stays in anyway. So that was sort of the thinking on the part of Judge Varlin. And uh, so, so, yeah, that there uh, everything really depends on the drug charges. That's really the important part of the case. And, and as I said, the drug evidence is very thin. If you take the drug evidence out, this lot looks a whole lot more like a firearms matter than a drug matter. And, and that's that's kind of the thing that you have to understand about this case. Okay, well, but what was there to the substance of the drug charges? There were two main things. The uh, So he was initially linked by the investigators to a storage unit in West Knoxville, in which was found about 40 pounds of Mexican ditchweed, about $200,000 in cash, and two AR-15s. And so that's piece of evidence number one. That was initially pinned on Don Reynolds. However... At the trial, one of these cartel witnesses claimed that it was his, and the the feds were unable to present any evidence that it was actually Don Reynolds that rented the storage unit. So uh, it it doesn't look like the storage unit was actually Don Reynolds's. In fact, did and, I did I read it right where they said, well, we did prove it. He rented a storage shed from the same company that owned the storage shed where we found this stuff. Something like that. In other words, they had nothing at all connecting him to that storage shed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the the that connection turned out to be completely false, and so the second piece. Well, wait a minute. Uh, when they raided the shed, did they raid it because they thought it belonged to him, or they just raided it anyway? And then they went after this guy, and they said, "Well, we do have this shed with some weed in it. Let's just say that we believe it somehow was connected to him until we get called out later." Yeah, that part looks a little bit murky. It's hard to know uh, because. To, uh, I, I mean, the um, the storage unit was raided by the Knoxville Sheriff's Department. And uh, so that wasn't raided by, um, it, it wasn't raided by any of these federal agencies. So it looks like that connection was sort of made ex post facto. Uh, and the, uh, uh, it's not clear to me who pointed them to that. Um, the search warrants to search Don Reynolds's house and his family's house, there were two witnesses that provided the evidence to obtain that search warrant. Only one of those witnesses testified at the trial. The other sort of disappeared and skipped town. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't, you know, it's probably a little beside the point to go into that, the, the main witness, Albert Ba. Um, but Wait, yeah, just she, hold that thought for just one second. I just want to clarify that I actually really did get that right because it sounds like I may be screwed that up because it's so silly that not just, well, he had rented a storage shed at that same facility, maybe the shed next door to it, uh, you know, adjacent to the one that had the drug something, but they, they actually wrote down the federal agents wrote down in official government paperwork. Well, we did prove that he had rented quote, had rented a storage warehouse unit owned by the same company 
as the mini storage unit that was searched that had the drugs. Yeah, that's right. There, there's no connection between Don Reynolds and the specific storage unit where they found the drugs. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for them, I mean, imagine being in trouble for that. I mean, imagine that being you got connected to a thing, uh, uh, you know, this major drug charges, but they admit in the warrant that their only connection between you and that storage warehouse is that you had rented a storage warehouse from that same company somewhere else at some other point in time. I mean, that sounds like some real, it sounds like it's either a lie or it's a story about the way they do it in Iran or some terrible place like that. It sounds completely crazy. This guy, doesn't he have a lawyer? What the hell is going on here? Yeah, well, we can get into that. He, uh, I mean, I, I think if you ask me, so I, I have gone and I've tried to contact every one of Don Reynolds's uh, revolving door of defense counsel, and it doesn't really look like he got a good defense, uh, if I'm being candid. I mean, I, I, you have to be careful about saying things like that. But um, none of them want to talk to me about the case, so it's pretty hard to make sense of it. I will say that the money expended by the Reynolds family on fighting this has been extremely onerous to them. Uh, it has uh, um, driven them. Uh, it's it's taken a lot of their money away. I mean, just trying to fight this case and they don't seem like they got a good defense. Um, you know, some of these like key issues about the legitimacy of the search warrant for his house and his parents' house um, were never challenged or they, they didn't do a good job of challenging them. Uh, so, so some key things seem like they were missed or overlooked or maybe um, were never given a chance to be presented. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a uh, it, it's really a strange one. Uh, so th that's the storage unit. Um, the Can you talk the about other... the garbage, the the cocaine wrapper in the garbage, something like that, because that yeah, seems so the... just as problematic. That's right. And so the second piece of drug related evidence that was presented against Don Reynolds was the presence of a wrapper for a brick of cocaine that was found in his trash. And the federal investigators that, that found that were IRS criminal investigators. And so the IRS was going through his trash, which is like maybe something that people don't realize that the IRS does. Uh, and, and you know, there, there are all sorts of, it actually is legal for the feds to go through your trash. That, that's, that's because you've thrown it away. Uh, which is why people shred stuff. But uh, so the 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 interesting thing about this particular bit of evidence is if he had a good defense lawyer, it probably should have been thrown out because two different IRS criminal investigators told two different judges two different stories about how they obtained it. One criminal investigator said that they actually went through the trash themselves. Another one said that they had a garbage man deliver it to them. And so that raises questions, not just, you know, because they're telling different stories in and of themselves, but who's this other guy that is delivering the trash? Did he put something in it? Um, you know, what uh, it, it raises questions about the chain of custody of the trash. Right. Um, and, and so that's the main flaw with the and also, you know, if this guy is uh, the government's accusing him of dealing millions of dollars worth of drugs and they raided his house they raided his parents house they didn't find anything and all they find is a wrapper for brick of cocaine in his trash and even this, the wrapper did they actually connect the wrapper to cocaine i mean it says here it has coffee grounds 
residue and packing tape, but that's not cocaine. That's right. And it looks like um, it's, you know, it's how a, a Coke dealer might uh, obscure the uh, a search, sure. right? That, that, that's pretty common. But uh, no, no, you're right. Uh, you know, you don't know if, if it was placed there or it just seems like very thin evidence, especially when you when you place it next to these two raids that find no drugs. And so that this is a, a very thin thread of evidence to hang a sentence of life plus 75 years on. Yeah. And talk about the money laundering charge, too, please. Yeah. So um, the the basically the substance of the evidence against him for the money laundering charges. I mean, there, there are some murky things going on with the condo deal. Uh, it, it's uh, some of which I wasn't really able to suss out in my reporting. So I didn't add it to the piece. But he was involved in the purchase of a condo in Las Vegas with a number of other partners, uh, one of which is this radio host, Sterling Hinton, who has some history in the libertarian movement, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, that that deal didn't didn't work out. And uh, the so the money laundering, they, they also alleged that his cash counting machines that he had in his house were evidence of money laundering. Now. That's uh, that's all well and good. But if you're running an events business, cash counting machines are actually kind of important because you're taking in a lot of cash. And uh, and so, again, uh, a cash counting machine is not prima facie evidence of money laundering, if you ask me. And, uh, you know, they, they they trotted out a number of other receipts in kind of funny business. But again, the, these were. What it looked like was you have all these other criminals that are testifying against him and they're all involved in these like weird transactions, moving money uh, and and drugs changing hands. But none of it seems to connect directly to Donald Reynolds. Um, It's you know, it all ends up looking like he's a little bit of a fall guy. You have these um, serious criminals testifying against him. You have. Uh, these cartel guys, all of whom are receiving reduced sentences, saying, yeah, Donald, Donald Reynolds was the kingpin. And, uh, you know, are are we really, you know, being asked to trust the word of a drug dealer and a guy who has confessed to ordering a hit on U.S. soil? Uh, you know, so so there these are the witnesses against him. The, the All of the material witnesses against him had sentence reductions. So, uh, you know, you have sort of the jailhouse snitch problem here. Mm-hmm. And then, so there's no physical evidence at all. So it all came down to the testimony, which, as you say, everyone involved has a conflict of interest there. But you also talk about his girlfriend for a time there and how she vouched for his character. And was that you interviewed her or this was from court testimony that you had gotten? Or So his wife, Melanie. Oh, I, it was I, his I, wife. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, they're actually two women. Oh, okay. uh, there, there was his wife, Melanie, and they split up over the stress of this uh, this trial. And uh, and then there was his girlfriend, Fatima Qutub, uh, who was out in Arizona. And she it, it looks like she was sort of hired as a kind of Instagram model uh, for some of the events that they were putting on in Arizona. And uh, the the she was questioned by the grand jury. And uh, she, she was first questioned by, it looks like, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Tracy Plowell, an ATF agent, and a third federal investigator who I've been unable to suss out. Um, but uh, so she she was questioned by them, and they tried to get her to admit to 
uh, drugs being involved. And uh, she didn't see any drugs, so she wasn't able to say that. So they questioned her in front of her parents. And so, you know, they're telling this pregnant lady, she's pregnant with twins, uh, you know, you, you're going to go away for a long time if you don't dime out to Reynolds. And she can't dime out because she hasn't seen any drugs. And so they're they're putting all this pressure on her and her parents are just like, just lie to them, just lie to the feds. And, and you you don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, she she couldn't give them what they wanted. And so she was subpoenaed by the grand jury and the grand jury declined to indict her. Uh, Melanie was Don Reynolds's wife. And the interesting thing about her testimony is, uh, you know, if Donald Reynolds was a, uh, you know, the kingpin of Knoxville, uh, he probably would have been living a little large. And it it doesn't seem like he was. They, you know, they were, they would cook dinner together. They, these, these sorts of, you know, it seemed like they lived a fairly normal domestic life. Um, the, the, there just doesn't seem to be, he wasn't living the lifestyle of like a big deal drug dealer. Hang on just one second. Hey y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Uh, and so, you know, is there anything else you wanted to get to about the two women? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that was the point really was here are these people that were around him who were saying, you know, talking about he would give, you know, just kind of run of the mill business advice. And, you know, you emphasized a couple of times that he told them, you really got to build up your credit score and this kind of thing. It doesn't really sound like a drug kingpin at all. And so that's right. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, I, I should bring that up. So, you know, if you just look at the way this guy does business, he's talking about building credit. He's uh, he's got these class three firearm stamps. And then um, when there's this fight over the Cadillac Escalade that his um, original co-defendant get. So his original co-defendant, Nathaniel Smith, is busted in Chicago in an Escalade that Don Reynolds has been involved in selling. And uh, so that car was impounded and then turned over to Albert Ba, this used car dealer that Donnie was in business with. And so Donald Reynolds, uh, he supposedly owns equity in that car. And so he sues Albert Ba for it. And that, that was a civil lawsuit in Knoxville Chancery Court. 
And so, you know, you have these three things. You have this lawsuit, you have the emphasis on credit, uh, and then you have um, you have the uh, class three stamps. This is a guy who's filling out all of his government paperwork. Yeah. Who's he's he's working within the system, right? right. Yeah, a drug dealer it, would have let that slide or figured out a, a way to resolve that problem, uh, you know, outside of the official channels, something like that. And when you go back to the a class three stamp, because that's you know a technical matter a lot of people aren't familiar with, but. Yeah, essentially, it's actually not illegal to own a machine gun in the United States of America if you have the proper certificate from the ATF, correct? That's right. Yeah. And in order to get those class three stamps, you have to pass a pretty substantial background check. And so, you know, if this guy has a criminal record or he has like some shadiness in his background, he's not going to get it. Mm-hmm. And, and so- as you said before, he's actually inviting extra scrutiny from federal police. That's exactly right. That, that's uh, this is not the way that you would expect a drug dealer to behave. Uh, it, it, and you know, so my my assumption from all of that is that he probably isn't one. Yes. Um, so then get to the guns because we got a machine gun, and machine guns are scary. And we have a story about what he might have done with that machine gun had the opportunity arise. And so now you know, grab the kids and run for the hills. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason why, <laughs> to, to uh, I mean, candidly, the reason, one of the reasons why I think this case hasn't attracted the kind of scrutiny it probably should is because it kind of falls between the biases of a lot of Americans. The left doesn't care about it because the guy liked guns, and the right doesn't care about it because of the drug angle. And so it falls between the political biases of most Americans, which is why uh, you know, maybe we need our libertarians on this one. So so Don Reynolds was a gun collector and he bought most of his guns from the Coal Creek Armory, which is now closed, which is in East Knoxville, was in East Knoxville. And so uh, I spoke to one of the clerks there who sold him a number of these guns. And Don Reynolds liked the expensive types of guns. He liked guns that would uh, retain their value. And uh, and so he he bought a whole lot of them, supposedly had several dozen. Uh, and the real head, head, headline grabbing detail that I think you're referring to is this uh, 30 cal machine gun on a tripod, World War II era replica that, that was sitting in his basement when the feds raided it. Now, th- what the feds claimed or what AUSA Lewin, the prosecutor on the case at the trial, what he claimed was is that he was using this mammoth monster machine gun to protect his drug transactions. Now, there are a number of problems with that. Uh, number one is the ammunition for that, that machine gun was still bubble wrapped. It, it had never been taken out of its uh, packaging because that's he's a collector. He wants to retain the value of this stuff. Uh, he, he shoots some of his other guns uh, uh, recreationally, but he um, doesn't do that with this one. And so the, the AUSA is, they're, they're using... They're using this tripod machine gun against him. They're saying he's using this, uh, you know, historical replica gun to protect his drug transactions, which just frankly doesn't make any sense. Uh, you, you know, the uh, like like I said in the piece, you know, so if he's afraid of do so, it, assuming for a second that he is actually a drug dealer and he's doing business with these cartel guys, um, he's afraid of them because these cartel guys have, a, you know, a history of violence, extortion, 
uh, that sort of thing. So he ostensibly gets a gun to protect himself. And the gun he gets is this is this monster of, of, of a gun that he can't take out of the house. And he's he's ostensibly meeting them in his basement. Now, if you're doing business with these people that you're afraid of, why would you meet them at your house? Uh, and and why would you, you know, there are, there are better guns to use for personal protection than a huge 30 cal tripod. In your guns. basement. In your basement. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I can't help it. I'm reminded of the poor kid Hamid Hyatt that was framed up on bogus terrorism charges out in Lodi, California, where they just put all these crazy words in his mouth to the point where at the end he was saying... That, yes, that's right. My grandfather lives in Afghanistan where Al-Qaeda trains on pole vaulting techniques in his basement there <laughs> because the cop is making up the kid like he goes, well, they have these sticks and he's like holding a stick in his hand. And the cop goes, what, pole vaulting? They're pole vaulting. And he goes, yeah, that's right. Pole vaulting. That's what they're doing. Um, the the, it used to be that the LA times had the video of the interrogation on their webpage for a short time there. And you could watch that, that whole, uh, interaction taking place. Um, mm. yeah, the guy was going to fire a 30 caliber machine gun in his basement, uh, dealing with these guys Oh, where they couldn't even find so much as a seat on the floor, uh, in this. Right. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and then you say too, that the guns and the drugs weren't even in the same house at the same time at any provable point anyway or i'm sorry there never were any drugs provable anywhere but uh he wasn't even accused of having drugs at the house at the same time that he's accused of having guns at the house that's right that's guns that he's authorized to the highest degree by the law to have that's right and so you know you would assume these cartel witnesses you know the government is relying on these you know, actual hardened criminals to testify against this black Knox villain. And they're saying that he's breaking down the weed in his basement. And, uh, you know, if, if he's breaking down the weed in his basement, breaking down weed, you know, you're taking it out of packages, you're putting it in new packages that, uh, that's likely to generate like refuse and, and debris. And they didn't find any, they didn't find, like you said, so much as a seed. And, uh, you know, so, Maybe maybe he's really good at cleaning up, or maybe these cartel guys just aren't telling the truth. I mean, that seems like it's it's the sort of Occam's razor explanation to me. Yeah. Okay, uh, but now, but, so help me understand why they hate this guy so much, and they're willing to go to such lengths to go after a guy who has all his tax stamps and who's not selling drugs, and they're letting all these real bad guys go free. Um, or get sentence reductions. That's right. I mean, so... What Don Reynolds claimed to me, so my my first point of contact, I, I asked Marty to put me in touch with him, and he writes me a letter that has his parents' phone number on it. And so I call his parents and I start talking to them about this. And, uh, you know, he claims in his letter to me that he was offered the chance to become a federal informant, and he declined. And uh, so... Uh, the you Randy know, if, Weaver, Jose Padilla treatment. Either exactly. work for us or off to Guantanamo you go. That's right. And uh, it, it looks like that's kind of what they did. And so, you know, if you're it, it looks a whole lot like some of the people around him were probably cooperating. And so if they're cooperating and he's not, that makes him a little bit of a risk. And uh, like I said, when you look at some of these gun transactions that are described at the trial, they look an awful lot like Fast and Furious style gun transactions because the guns are walking 
and the types of guns at issue. So the two most common guns that were trafficked as part of Fast and Furious were AR-15s and Herstal 5.7s. Herstal 5.7 is a sidearm. The, uh, the Obama administration very much did not like that gun because they considered it a, uh, a cop killer that it was powerful enough to pierce body armor. And the AUSA in the trial kind of brought that up. Like Don Reynolds is getting this first all five, seven for, for a cartel guy because it's a cop killer. Um, and that transaction. So if it happened, um, so what this, this cartel connected witness asks Don Reynolds, allegedly, this is all according to the trial testimony, asks for the first all five, seven, Don Reynolds gets it to him. And then there's no evidence or no testimony that indicates that it goes from that cartel guy in Texas to the guy in Mexico who's asking for it. There's just no evidence for that in, in the record. And so did that gun walk across the border? We don't know. Uh, and so that transaction itself, because Donnie, he had the class three stamps, but he didn't have a federal firearms license. In order to sell a gun over state lines, you need a federal firearms license. And uh, so if that, that, that transaction, which is from a guy in Tennessee to a guy in, in Texas, would be illegal if he didn't have a federal firearms license. And that was a transaction that looks like it took place under federal supervision. And uh, so that's a crime that they basically seem, it seems like they allowed to happen. They didn't charge Don Reynolds with it. And so this looks like a sort of straw purchase similar to what was going on with Fast and Furious. And so, you know, you, you have this class three firearm stamps piece, you have these weird gun transactions, so that you've got the ATF in the background, but you don't have any ATF agents testifying in any way at the trial. It's awfully strange, because you know the ATF is like watching all this stuff, it's just they're not involved in the specific investigation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very strange. Uh, it, it, I'm sorry, sorry forgive my ignorance about the whole gun walking scandal, because I really should have done a deep dive in interviews about that in the past. I don't think I ever really have, maybe once or twice. Um, but didn't this all kind of revolve around a gun shop in Arizona? Is this connected to that? Or do I even know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, so it, it started, uh, so there were, there, there are two pieces of it. So Fast and Furious was the name of the big operation that went national from, I, I think it was like, uh, it, it was exposed in 2011 when Senator Chuck Grassley got involved. And then it was 2012 when the uh, Office of the Inspector General for the Justice Department put out their big report. And so if you wanna kind of read up on what Fast and Furious was all about, the best source that we have right now is that Office of the Inspector General report from 2012. And it, it's online, it's, it's worth reading in full. But so Fast and Furious grew out of Operation Wide Receiver, which was just taking place in Arizona. And uh, it, was, it was run out of the ATF offices in Arizona. And, and what they were doing was, you know, so the ATF got wind of what looked like a network of straw purchasers. So it's, a, you know, if there's somebody who's not allowed to own a gun and uh, he goes to a friend and says, why don't you buy this gun for me? That's called a straw purchase and that's illegal. And uh, so what, what the, the ATF was doing was rather than uh, when they see these illegal purchases going on, rather than making an arrest on the spot, they would let the guns walk into the hands of the cartels in the hope of getting a higher level prosecution further down the line. And they let this happen time and time again with thousands of firearms. 
And what it looks like is that most of these guns and ended up in the hands of the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, and, you know, right across the border from Tucson is Sinaloa territory. And so uh, how does this connect to the Don Reynolds case? Well, we don't have anything specific, but the timelines and the nature of those transactions described at the trial are pretty compelling. Uh, the, the, so he starts to do business with the Tucson auto dealership that may or may not be a cartel front in 2006. And 2006 was right when Fast and or when Wide Receiver, the predecessor to Fast and Furious, was ramping up. And, and so, uh, you know, he's he's probably doing business with some things that might be cartel fronts. And uh, and, and he's you know he's involved in so Don Reynolds. Just like think about who he is. He's this businessman who deals in used cars, uh, and he's a big gun nut. Um, he's sort of an ideal straw purchaser for an operation like this. He's uh, got a lot of experience dealing firearms and, you know, he's the sort of guy that the feds would probably want to turn for something like this. But if you uh, if you commit a felony, you can't you can't own guns anymore. And so uh, he declined to cooperate or accept a lower level, um, you know, plead guilty to anything lower level because he likes guns and uh, doesn't want to lose his right to own firearms. And so, uh, you know, he decided to fight it. He pled not guilty and he lost. And, and that's that's why he's in prison for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, so so the overall picture. And by the way, I did mean, he get a full jury trial of 12 and a whole process yes. like Matlock? Yes. And was did he testify in his own defense at all and try to set the record straight on this or? Yes, he did. And I, I mean, so how did that go at all? I did just. Did they did his lawyers not help him hit all the most salient points that they needed to get the jury to understand there or the jury was just all cops wives and his fate was sealed or what's the deal? You know, so the the, the thing that really he needed to challenge, but the judge didn't allow them to challenge was uh -huh. the legitimacy of the warrant, uh, the legitimacy of the warrant to search his house and his parents house that that was just uh, that challenge was never allowed to go forward. They and, lost that in the hearings before the trial ever started, right? That, yeah. That's right. Um, I, I forget the name of the specific. It's a Frank's hearing. That's what it's called. He was never given a Frank's hearing to uh, to challenge. But wait, I more. thought the only thing that was found in his parents' house was supposedly the wrapper in the, or that was even somewhere else. The wrap, the supposed cocaine wrapper with the coffee ground. They, what did they even find at his parents' house? Nothing. They and, and the, you know the. The piece of this, the kind of pressure being brought to bear against his parents is maybe the most galling and troubling part of this case. Um, you know, he looks like he's, um, let's just say the evidence against him is not very strong. Uh, I have doubts about the Don Reynolds's prosecution on the whole, but what's really inappropriate is the pressure brought to, to bear against his parents. When his parents' house were raided, they took their wine, their jewelry, uh, all their cars. Everything was said to be proceeds from a drug operation. And that, um, that asset forfeiture was ratified by the jury and uh, was never given back. And so this is basically like a legalized robbery of this guy's like 70-something-year-old black family. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's really outrageous. And, you, wait, I'm sorry, because that is and it's its own important point. But if you go back one step, 
the the flaw I was saying like did he really get a chance to make a, a sound defense there and you were saying nah because the judge allowed whatever something or not you didn't say this exactly but it, it, I inferred that what you meant was something was found during that raid of his parents house on that bad warrant that sealed his fate but nothing was found as parents house that sealed anything so what difference did that make I don't understand uh, I, I I don't think it made much of a difference. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, I, th- I think at this point when he, he gets up and he alleges this grand conspiracy against him involving the government and drug cartels. I mean, he, he Donnie's a smart guy, but he's also he for a while there, he started getting into some sort of uh, let's just say like fringe legal theories. He signed all of his um, he signed some of his correspondence, Donald Reynolds Bay which is a sign of like, it's sort of the black version of like sovereign citizens kind of stuff. Uh, These sorts of unusual legal theories that you sometimes get with, with inmates. And uh, so, you know, he's alleging this grand conspiracy and everybody's probably just looking at him like, Oh, you're crazy. And you're, uh, you know, sort of, you know, twisting on the hook a little bit. And uh, you know, you're, you're just a drug dealer trying to make excuses. Uh, I, I think that's probably what it looked like at that point, because yeah, a lot of this stuff looks like it's being hidden. And uh, th- that's that's my impression of it, just reading the trial testimony. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't sound like his lawyer had his act together any better than he did. Yeah. And when he starts alleging, you know, this all happens, um, the trial's going on before Fast and Furious is really broken. And oh, so he's, yeah. he's alleging that the government's involved in all this illegality and uh and you know he probably sounds like a crazy person well folks sad to say they lied us into war all of them world war one world war two korea vietnam iraq war one serbia afghanistan iraq war two libya syria yemen all of them but now you can get the ebook all the war lies by me for free Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get all the war lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you, too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. And then how, yeah. how much after his conviction, how long after does the story come out in the news and the jury all go, oops, it turned out? Um, as, as far as I know, uh, nobody has said oops, yeah. uh, th- though that would be nice. Privately, uh, they I bet they must have gone, wow, I wonder if that has something to do with that thing that we, you know... Yeah, maybe. As far as I know, I was the first one to make the the connection between Fast and Furious in this case. Yeah. Uh, I, I have contacted, I contacted the, the court reporter who covered this case in the Knoxville newspaper, and I told her about my theories, and she, she thought it was a little far-fetched. But, 
you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to cast dispersions on her, but, um, you know, if, if you're just covering local affairs, you probably don't read very much about like what happened with Fast and Furious. And, and you know, there's a way with the sort of partisanship of media, Fast and Furious sort of got relegated to this far right conspiracy theory. Um, and, and that's very much not, um, I mean, I, I think Fast and Furious is something that should kind of trouble every American because mm -hmm. it, it raises the question of um, gun dealers being made into informants. Yeah. And, well, and uh, as you touched on before, it raises questions of the American government's secret alliance with the Sinaloa cartel in their war with the Zetas circa early last decade, right? That's right. That's right. And, and so the, the, this sort of divide and conquer strategy the U.S. government has used before. And if you're, you know, the, the, the Sinaloa cartel looks like sort of the good one to make an alliance with for a couple of reasons. One, if you're trying to divide and conquer, you want to pick the biggest guy first to be your ally. Um, and the Sinaloa cartel at that time was, was easily the most powerful. And they're also a little bit more businesslike than the Zetas or uh, La Familia Michoacana, uh, who are, you know, it, the, these sort of dramatic acts of violence, people being hung from bridges or having their heads cut off and stuff like that. It's, you don't tend to see that stuff from the Sinaloa cartel. It tends to be the Zetas or uh, some of the other cartels. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're the U.S. government and you're trying to do this divide and conquer strategy, pick the business-like ones. And some of the reporting on on the way um, the the way these like drug cartel extortion rackets work, um, you know, if you look at some of these um, cities on the west coast of Mexico, they tend to like the Sinaloa cartel because they keep the extortion fees down. They you don't have to pay as much in protection to them. Then and, and you know, so if you if you're in a contested city, a city that's being contested by multiple cartels, you might be paying protection to like two or three different criminal organizations. If there's unified control, you're only paying protection to one and the prices are low. And so, um, you know, Sinaloa cartel looks like the attractive option. And so, uh, you know, th there are no government entity has ever acknowledged that this is uh, that this was a thing. And there may not even ever be a paper trail to indicate that uh, this is the, the sort of thing that you would really have to hide. But nevertheless, if you look at the pattern of interventions by the DEA and the ATF, it's unmistakable that the way they have acted has advantaged the Sinaloa cartel at the expense of other cartels. Uh, and so um, that's just what it, it looks like to me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the Fast and Furious thing became something that congressional Republicans waved the bloody shirt over in 2012 because they wanted to use it against Eric Holder. And Eric Holder, so th this was the, Eric Holder became the first sitting cabinet member to be held in contempt of Congress over this case. Eric Holder refused to testify about it. And, um, you know, so it's clear that, um, you know, so having a sitting attorney general be, being held in contempt of Congress is kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, so he's, uh, you know, despite that, I mean, I think there are all sorts of constitutional questions there. Uh, you know, the attorney general should have to answer Congress's questions. But if you're, you know, if you're the attorney general sitting there and you're, you're dealing with this operation that was, you know, in fairness to Holder going on before he was the attorney general, right? You had wide receiver um, uh, happening, you know, before he was in office. 
And so as sort of an act of loyalty to the people working under him, he kind of keeps his mouth shut and is willing to go down for contempt over it. Mm. And uh, I think that's sort of what happened there. And so the Republicans, they were just, they wanted to wave the bloody shirt over this. So all the people that were killed because of these guns that walked, including a border patrol agent, Brian Terry. And so Brian Terry became a real cause celeb on the right. And so this sort of got slotted into our partisan media environment that this is, you know, Republicans just doing their thing, you know, trying to get the Obama administration, when really the story is much bigger than that. And I don't think it's a partisan one at all. Yeah, but definitely having that partisan angle and then having also covert action, totally illegal, scandalous CIA stuff on that other level really does help, uh, you know, relegate it in the narrative to being somebody's pet issue, but not a real you know, broad issue for everyone, which is really unfortunate because, I mean, look at, presumably, I think I agree with you, it sounds like there very well could be a real connection here, but even if this is just its own smaller version of that, um, you know, they really do this a lot. I mentioned uh, Randy Weaver and Jose Padilla. They're the two most notable examples to me of people who had their lives absolutely ruined simply for refusing to become an informant. And I guess this guy's the third. I'm sure there's a million more. But uh, yeah, I I think this sort of thing is pretty common. And, uh, you know, if you're um, he's, you know, you look at Don Reynolds, and he looks like he's involved from the very beginning uh, of of these sorts of, you know, you know, funny networks going on in Tucson. And, uh, you know, so does he know about the activities of other people that did try to cooperate with the government? I, I think that's the real question. I, I don't want to say anything that's likely to get me sued about um, some of the other people he knew and was doing business with. But I, I suspect that some of them were cooperating with the government. And uh, so if they are and he's not, it can be easily become a very dangerous situation for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... It's a good way to build and win cases. It's just set people up. <laughs> FBI does it all the time. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, that, that, that's that's exactly right. And, and you know, to, to maybe um, draw out and, and look at this in a little bit of a bigger picture, you know, Don, if the expectation, the, the, the reasons why I think this is a case that, that people should care about uh, our number one, I mean, Don Reynolds's father worked at Oak Ridge National Lab and he was in the army. This is a family that served his country. And, uh, you know, they they don't know why this is happening to them. They're getting all this strange pressure and they don't know why. Um, that's outrageous. And second, if the expectation for conservatives, if, if conservatives expectation for the black community is that they, you know, raise themselves up by their bootstraps, they figure it out, they start business and stuff. Well, Don Reynolds is a guy that did that. Don Reynolds is a guy whose business activities were getting people out of the ghetto. Uh, he was creating a better life for people. And so if Republicans or conservatives want to do right by the black community through that means, you can't be taken out guys like this. Um, th- that's uh, because you're, you know, you're telling them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and then you're cutting down the people that are helping them do that. Right. It's, it's just, uh, it's not good. And, uh, you know, they, they notice this sort of thing. I mean, the, uh, the black community in Knoxville has not forgotten about this case. 
Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, how many people overall, over what period of time? It's in the thousands, tens of thousands of people who've been falsely railroaded over these ridiculous kind of contraband charges where, you know, oh, we, you know, it was one, what, a year or so ago where the lady had sugar from a glazed donut on the console in her car. And they go, oh, that's methamphetamines. And she's locked up for a year or something before they let her out. And meanwhile, she misses her daughter's wedding and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And completely right. ruin people's lives. Her mother died while she's in there on these bogus charges. Like, oh, that's just some collateral damage, like accidentally killing some Iraqis on your way to kill some other Iraqis. And it doesn't matter that these people's lives are being absolutely destroyed over this. Well, they had these grown adults. He he was holding a white powder that we told him he was not allowed to have. Like this is daycare or something. This is crazy that a free society would give government such a loophole to go after people. A guy with the highest level permission of gun ownership, you know, avowed up front, you know, preemptive permission from the government to own guns in the country, get completely railroaded for having guns when he refuses to become an informant, things like this. How many of this, how much of this is acceptable collateral damage in the name of prohibition? It's apparently endless. That's know? right. It, and in and, fact, and, even and, in this, even hearing in your article where they say, geez, our faith in the system, or I guess you're paraphrasing, our faith in the system is shattered because we're part of the system. They're not supposed to do this to us. But yeah, but they do this to people all the time. Don't you hear people crying out how unfair they're being treated, regardless of what color they are? People get mis... And it's not just being shot by cops. It's being railroaded up and down by everyone. Listen listen to an AM talk show if the host says, does anybody have any nightmare stories about the IRS? And you'll hear the phones ring for weeks. They won't be able to talk about anything else for weeks. Because right, people talk yeah. about the terror that they go through at the hands of these goons. Yeah, I mean, these these government agencies are pretty opaque to a lot of people. And they, uh, you know, when something bad happens to them, or you get audited or something like that, you know, you don't know why and everybody feels like they're being targeted when that happens to them. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I'm not so much of a libertarian that I don't think there should be any taxes. And so somebody has to collect them. But it's, it's hard to argue the IRS has uh, not been politicized in the past. And they, uh, you know, certainly Put, do put people through the ringer sometimes. Yeah. And look, gun control is the same exact bad economics. Take the corruption of any particular cop out of it or any particular prosecutor by banning guns. If you ask a right winger about the economics of banning guns, closing down Billy Bob's gun shop and turning it over to the most ruthless murderer to be the monopoly kingpin on black market gun sales in any given area, they would say, you should not do that. You know, keep guns safe and legal. You know, well, it's the exact same economics with drugs. And liberals should understand that when they look at drugs and they go, how can you prohibit drugs? All you do is destroy the lives of innocent people and you have all this corruption and bogus charges and all of these things. They should understand that's the same thing that would happen if you outlaw guns only with actual weapons instead of just drugs. So, which, you know, can be dangerous in their own way, but still. Uh, and the solution is, as you were saying at the beginning there, is 
both sides have their major blind spot here, but the libertarians have it right that we need to legalize guns and drugs and go about having a free society in a much different way than we have been here. Because if only for this one guy, right? Like, why should this one guy have to go through this? Because of gun and drug charges, when everyone agrees, at worst, he's committed an offense and hasn't actually committed a crime at all, hasn't done anything to anyone, and he's facing life plus 75 for his rotting corpse, too? What the hell is that? Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I do think because of some of the stuff you're talking about, like, uh, you know, I, maybe this isn't the time to get into, like, my views about drug prohibition, but, you know, if you're, there really is the risk of, like, organized crime moving into the drug business in the U.S., uh, it, it already exists. And so if you're sort of a small dispensary owner or a small marijuana grower or something like that, it's actually probably to your benefit that the DEA keeps it as Schedule 3. Uh, I, I, this is probably an unpopular point to make to libertarians. But like if you are a small grower or a small dispensary owner, the DEA is probably going to leave you alone because you're probably operating within state law. But because of the risk of organized crime moving into those markets, I think the feds probably do need the means to go after the actual drug cartel networks as they move into these markets. And so, you know, I actually think like if you're a small uh, marijuana businessman, the DEA schedule th or schedule one uh, is probably your best friend. <laughs> actually, this is probably a controversial point to make to libertarians. I'm sorry. No, I understand what you mean. In <laughs> other words, if they just fully legalize the trade, you would have larger corporate monopolies than the little guy would lose. And this is sort of protection for smaller pot dealers. Yeah, well, I, I mean, not, not not just large corporations, but like drug cartels, right? They, oh, they yeah. would, well, they would, they would. Well, I mean, if you fully legalized it, then no, the cartels would lose out immediately to Philip Morris. And the federal government, you know, the, I mean, in fact, I mean, that's really what happened when they legalized weed in beginning when they legalized weed in California was it bankrupted a lot of the Mexican black market pot dealers because there wasn't, it became so plentiful in the United States and higher grade stuff. And so the Mexican cartels had to switch to methamphetamines and cocaine and other things because the pot supply in America became much more domestic. Yeah, I, I guess the counterexample is prohibition, right? Where you have all these like mafiosi that were, you know, running illegal alcohol. They just like go legit. And that's where we get like Seagram's, uh, Seagram's alcohol. Well, know, yeah, but that's that what I'm saying is, yes, make them legit. Make it Sinhaloa Inc. And then we don't have to worry about everybody killing each other anymore. You know, go yeah, ahead and fully see. legalize the trade. And that's you get rid of the all the problems that came with prohibition. I suppose, uh, you know, not legalizing it and then just the government working with Sinaloa anyway is probably the worst of both worlds. I'll agree right. with you there. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, hey, CIA guys got to put their kids through private school somehow here, Arthur, you know? <laughs> All right. Hey, listen, uh, one more thing before I let you go is uh, you did have a follow-up here that I didn't have a chance to look at. More odd details in the Donald Reynolds case. Was there anything important there we need to touch on? No, uh, the, the, the detail that, uh, the two details that are in that follow-up piece that, uh, we've kind of already touched on okay. are, are the lawsuit against that other car dealer, Albert Baugh. I see. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he has his car seized in this drug bust in Chicago and the car is turned back over to this auto dealer that he's doing business with and Don Reynolds files a lawsuit. And so, 
normally you don't see drug kingpins filing lawsuits. That's that's just like not something they do. And then the other piece of evidence in there, in that follow-up piece, is his original co-defendant uh, arguing that Don Reynolds was not involved in drugs. So the the that guy, the original co-defendant, Nathaniel Smith, is the one who was busted in that Cadillac Escalade in Chicago. So you have this drug, drug bust in Chicago, the car gets seized, and the guy who was um, arrested with those drugs in Chicago is saying Don Reynolds had nothing to do with it. So, uh, you know, to me, this is more uh, signs that, you know, he, he put out that statement and then he retracted it, uh, probably under pressure. Um, so again, this is, you know, this is a very murky case, but there are reasons to believe that this guy was railroaded in a big way. And, uh, and, and the, the thing, you know, that happens all the time, as you say, but the thing that makes this one extraordinary is that he looks like he was railroaded as part of an operation that involved the feds cooperating with organized crime. Oh, and And, I meant to ask you too, was, what's the point about, uh, Kiriakou here? Is that worth bringing up that? Well, I, I'm just, you know, like I said in that piece, I'm, I'm glad other people are starting to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'll, I'll say I, I've been copying to this recently. I did sort of transgress a journalistic boundary by helping him out with his clemency petition in the Trump administration. And uh, I, I did that for two reasons. Uh, one, I do think he deserves clemency. I, I My impression of this case is uh, similar to yours. And I think this guy was probably railroaded. And But the second reason why I involved myself in his clemency petition was because of the retaliation that's gone on against some of the other people that have taken up this case. Um, they, you know, The family was retaliated against. They were threatened. Uh, and so I was a little bit worried that that might happen to me. And so I was communicating with people in the Trump White House about this. And so um, the I had been hopeful that his clemency petition would go through in in the latter days of the Trump administration, like the last two months, that didn't end up happening. Um, I, I, you know, contacted a bunch of criminal justice reform advocates. Uh, Donnie, in his letters to me, tried tried to get me to contact Kim Kardashian. <laughs> uh, you know, so so um, I, you know, far be it for me to um, question the presidential pardon power. I think it is very important. But if you look at the pardons and commutations that went on in the latter days of the Trump administration, many of them were awfully shady, if you ask me, um, especially the one of Eliyahu Weinstein. Uh, that one looked like it was kind of a mob pardon. Um, some of these others have just sort of corrupt Republican political operatives. So you see all these sort of insidery pardons and commutations go through. And then you see like a pardon for a guy like Don Reynolds not go through. And that's uh, it, it. It doesn't make me feel good to, to, to watch that happen. You know, um, it's, it's hard to watch that, uh, that, that, you know, the pardon power is, is not for, um, getting your corrupt cronies out of trouble. It's supposed to be for correcting injustices in the system. And, um, it, it doesn't look like that happened here. Yeah. Well, that's what journalism is for too. And you're doing your part there for sure. In maybe you're doing the most to bring accountability here. Uh, so then I guess, Two part last question. Then, first of all, I guess the asterisk here is just a clarification that Kiriakou, John Kiriakou, the former CIA officer, he had heard somewhere that you'd been threatened to stop writing about this, and you were just clarifying that that wasn't exactly right. 
And then yeah. secondly, the real question is, is anyone else doing anything about this? Are there any new lawyers or any groups or anybody who's paid special attention to this other than you and John? Um, yes. So I was just clarifying that nobody has explicitly threatened me about this story. I, I will say um, a certain right of center people have not been super happy about this story, but I, I, I can't say I've ever received an explicit threat. And I did speak to one of Attorney General Bill Barr's deputies about the case. I can't talk about the details of that, but I was talking to people at like at a pretty high level in the Justice Department about this case, both in the Justice Department and at the White House. Um, so uh, I, I do think it made, you know, if somebody wanted to move the ball along, the thing to kind of track down would be those communications within the White House, which should all be subject to FOIA. Yeah. Um, and uh, so if, you know, I, I would love to know just how far along this got, or if they were just all lying to me and they were just sort of stringing me along. I, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. Um but as, as far as I know, at the moment, it's it's Marty, Kiriakou, me, a handful of other people that have taken an interest in this. And so if there are others, I am very happy to talk to them uh, um, and, uh, you know, give any advice or tell them what I know, um, because I, I do think an injustice was done here. Yeah. And and yeah, building that team of journalists is important. But this guy needs some lawyers, some really sharp ones. And, you know, this seems like it might be a case for the ACLU or something. I've seen them defend a gun defendant before. I know they don't want to legalize guns, but I've seen them take the side of somebody who's being kind of railroaded on charges like that. I don't know if that's, you know, worth taking to them. But it sounds like this guy needs a powerful group, right? This guy needs some heavy guns to come to his defense here. Yeah. And, you know, one thought I had was maybe, you know, if Chuck Grassley or something were interested in reopening Fast and Furious, because um, I think, you know, Republicans got to the point of waving the bloody shirt. But we never really found out what was really going on there. And, and so, I mean, there are there are so many things in the past, many of which you've covered well on your show about, you know, these sort of old controversies that there are still these lingering questions about. Fast and Furious is another one of those things. I mean, I've got these suspicions about the Sinaloa piece and all of that, but none of that has ever been kind of confirmed in a public way. And it would probably have to be Congress that does that, or it'd have to be done through a lawsuit or something. And you're right. I mean, I think this guy needs some help. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, man, great work and great interview. Really appreciate your time on the show, Arthur. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right, you guys, that is Arthur Bloom formerly at the American Conservative Magazine, where you can read these important pieces. The Knoxville Kingpin Who Wasn't. Really, take a look at it. It's great. And more odd details in the Donald Reynolds Jr. case. And check out his substack. It's arthuriana.substack.com. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com. Antiwar.com. ScottHorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org.